If you've been looking for a comprehensive Bible school curriculum that explores redemptive realities in Jesus Christ grounded in the Word of God, look no further. The goal of this podcast is to spread the life-transforming Word of God throughout the world for the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry and to build up the body of Christ in what Jesus has accomplished for us through His death, burial, resurrection, and seating at the right hand of God the Father. There's such an untapped potential for Christians to enter into their glorious inheritance in Jesus Christ. Together we will discover what Jesus has done for us by providing such a great salvation and how to appropriate the promises of God in our lives. Jesus said in John chapter 8 verse 31, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Each podcast season will cover one of the books that I have compiled over the years. You can find a complete listing of my Christian education material on my website at www.wordinspire.com. You're welcome to download these ebooks for free in PDF format for your own personal or ministry use. So let's explore these biblical truths and principles together that will absolutely transform our lives. God bless. Welcome to the Word of Life study series, The Sacrifices. We had just discussed in the previous podcast how God had established a tabernacle, a sacrifice system, and a priesthood as the way for the Hebrew to approach Him. We saw how the tabernacle was a physical representation showing us the way to God. We now want to learn about the sacrifices, which are so strange to our Western minds. Doesn't seem logical to our culture, do they? But let's first do a little review. When God appeared to the Hebrews to give them the law, it was an awesome sight. There was tremendous thunder and lightning storms. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke that billowed into the sky like a furnace. The whole mountain shook with a violent earthquake, and God commanded the people to not even come near the mountain, lest they die. God is a holy God, and he was about to reveal himself to his covenant people. Already they had been a murmuring and a complaining. Yet the parties to a covenant cannot walk together unless they are in agreement. Well, it was quite evident the Hebrews didn't know much about their covenant partner. So God said, It's about time I introduce myself to you. It's about time you meet your covenant partner. So he booms out the Ten Commandments. Through the Ten Commandments and the other laws accompanying them, God was saying, This is what I am like. This is my character. This is who you are in covenant with. Along with the laws, we've learned that God also gave instructions for building the tabernacle, for redeeming the priesthood, and for establishing an elaborate system for making sacrifices. Then we read that Moses built an altar and offered a sacrifice to God. He took the blood of the sacrificed animals and sprinkled the blood against the altar. He also sprinkled the people as well. In the same manner, he sprinkled blood over the book of the covenant containing the Ten Commandments and accompanying laws. Later, he would sprinkle blood over the tabernacle and all its furnishings used in worship. In Exodus 24, verse 8, it states, 
Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it upon the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that God has made with you in accordance with all these words. Hebrews 9.18 This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So we learn from all this that God gave the law as his way of revealing himself to the world. It was his calling card, so to speak, to show the world his character. In this respect, the law served as God's divine mirror. When the Hebrew looked into the Ten Commandments, he would see God's holiness and his sinfulness. This would enable the Hebrew to recognize the infinite gap between God and himself. He could understand that he had sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness of sin. This revelation would drive the Hebrew to the blood covenant as his means of being reconciled to God. You see, God was showing the world through his covenant people that we approach him by his grace provided through the blood covenant. With the revelation of his absolute holiness, we quickly realize the futility of seeking to reconcile ourselves to God by trying to be a good person and keeping God's commandments or any other religious or moral code of ethics. Sin is a spiritual crime that invokes a penalty of death, eternal punishment. It's ludicrous to suppose a good deed would undo rebellion and high treason. Someone has to pay. You can either pay it yourself or let someone else. But who would be that nice? I had a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. So Jesus paid my sin debt that he did not owe, and out of love for one so lost as me. Without a Savior like Jesus, we are all doomed. So now we come to understand that even at our best, we don't measure up to a holy God. So we too then should run to the blood covenant that sanctifies us. The law, the tabernacle, priesthood, and the sacrificial system were all under the old covenant, but they pointed the Hebrew to the new covenant when God himself would come in the flesh. His coming would fulfill his promise to Abraham, which was that from Abraham's seed, singular, would come one who would be a blessing to the whole world. So when he came, he would do away with these temporary provisions that pointed to him. The imperfect old covenant would be replaced by a perfect everlasting new covenant. It is unfortunate that many still cling to the old. Luke 5.39 states, And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says the old is better, the old wine of religious works. Background In the beginning, God created a perfect universe that was orderly and harmoniously operating within his will. But man chose to rebel against God's will. Man's rebellion brought chaos and destruction on himself and everything around him. We only need to look around to realize this truth. God calls man's rebellion sin. He says we all do it because it's our nature. It is within us. A lot of people try to blame the devil for their actions, but God says sin is an inside job. Mark 7, verse 20 through 23, Ephesians 2, verse 3, James 1, 14. Now man's sin was no surprise to God. Adam didn't sneak up on God and pull a fast one on while God was napping. 
God knew all along what would happen when he created mankind. Of course he would, since he's God. You see, God didn't cause rebellion, but he allowed it. God allowed it because he loves us enough to give us a free will that he will not violate. God doesn't cause us to sin, but he allows us to. I realize that this is a difficult concept. When witnessing to the lost, some have said, well, why did God create me in the first place if I was going to sin and just go to hell for all eternity? It would have been better for me not to have been even born. People like that will just have to take it up with their creator, but the scripture does say in Romans chapter 9, verse 19, One of you will say to me, Then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? He won't force us to love him. Forced love isn't really love, is it? But God told Adam that the day he sinned by eating the forbidden fruit, he would surely die. Genesis 2.17 The penalty for sin is death. And what is the evidence that the penalty has been paid? Why, it is the blood. Shed blood is the evidence that life has been given on behalf of another to pay the penalty. Blood speaks on behalf of the guilty. It speaks of forgiveness. God had forewarned Adam. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, it states, To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, God is a God of order, and he cannot tolerate rebellion in his universe. It must be dealt with and punished. To put it simply, if God allowed rebellion to go unpunished, he would cease to be God and his universe would fall apart. It would become an uncontrolled, chaotic mess. Now, that would not be love, would it? To overlook a little sin. Yet some folks think winking at little sins, overlooking white lies, as long as it does not hurt anybody, is no big deal. This is seriously flawed thinking. Very convenient to the perpetrator, isn't it? Relative moralism is the theme of a me-centric generation that follows its own path of virtue and happiness, void of any absolute truth that would keep them from a shipwrecked life. Isaiah 53, 6. We all like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 56 verse 11. They are dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They are shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. Each seeks his own gain. Come, each one cries, let me get more wine. Let us drink our fill of beer, and tomorrow we'll be alike today, or even far better. You know, we can get a pretty good idea of God's viewpoint by looking at our own country. Failure to apply the law of the land has resulted in disrespect for the law and a lawlessness and chaos that is almost uncontrollable. Proverbs 29.18 Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Well, God can't allow this to happen to himself nor his universe, so he says rebellion must be punished. However, God is also a God of love. He loves mankind, but he must punish mankind for their rebellion. He cannot exercise his love at the expense of his justice. So he made a provision for dealing with man's rebellion. He made this provision before man's rebellion even took place. God knew it would happen, so he planned ahead on how to deal with it. Now that sounds like a God of order, doesn't it? Speaking of Jesus, in Revelation 13 verse 8, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Romans 5 6, you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. 
God's plan says, although the penalty of sin is death, you don't have to pay for it. I'll come to earth and pay it for you. I'll purchase your salvation with my own blood, my very life. This is God's provision and is the out God ordained for mankind because it satisfies his perfect love without violating his perfect justice. From the beginning, God determined that he would provide himself, his own blood, as the evidence that the penalty has been paid. God determined that a certain time in history, he would become the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. John 1.29 In Galatians 4 verse 4 it states, But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. All who have believed and accepted God's plan in their heart have been saved from the sin penalty by looking to the time when God would literally come to the earth and cut the covenant by the shedding of his own blood. Today, we look back to what Jesus has done around 2,000 years ago, confessing Jesus as Lord and believing that God has raised him from the dead, according to Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. Yet like the Pharisees, if we try to put God in a box of our own design, we can miss the grace of God. Luke 7.30 But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus wept over Jerusalem in Luke 19 verse 44 because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus, or Jehovah, the great I Am, was in their midst and they missed their salvation because they were looking for a kind to deliver them from the Romans instead of what the Bible promised, Jesus would first come as a lamb to take away their sins. Then upon his second coming, he would come as a lion to rid the world of spiritual darkness. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18 For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. God gave us a preview of his plan from the very beginning, and he tells us about it in Genesis chapter 3. Here is what happened. When Adam and Eve sinned, they covered themselves with leaves and hid from God. This was their way of covering their sin. Well, when God saw Adam and Eve covered with those fig leaves, he knew it was time to explain the spiritual facts of life. But how could he do it? How could he explain his plan in terms they could understand? There was only one way. He must kill an innocent animal and accept its blood in substitution as a temporary covering of their sin. It would be an imperfect substitution and only cover sin, but it would point everybody in the right direction. Then when he came along himself, he would be the perfect substitute. His blood would do more than just cover sin. It would take it away. Then, no more sacrifices would be needed. Genesis 3.21 The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So God killed an animal and showed it to Adam and Eve. Now Adam and Eve have never seen death before. You and I are accustomed to death, but not so with Adam and Eve. It must have made them sick to see life taken away from one of God's creatures. Although God didn't have Moses record the details of his plan in this preview account, He certainly must have explained it to Adam and Eve. I believe he had Adam watch him kill the animal and then said, Adam, you remember I told you the penalty of sin is death? Well, this is what I'm talking about. Horrible, isn't it? 
Makes your stomach draw into knots, doesn't it? I don't like it any more than you do, but the wrath from my violated justice must be satisfied. Now do you understand how horrible sin is in my sight? I can't even stand to look at it. And those fig leaves you are wearing can't hide your sins. Because when I look at you with those fig leaves, I don't see the proper evidence that the price has been paid. I still see your sins, and my eyes are too holy to look at you. So your way of covering your sins is not acceptable. But if you will accept this dead animal as your sin substitute for now, I'll let it pay the price for you. I'll let it temporarily cover your sins until I come myself and take them away permanently. You see, God clothed Adam and Eve with the skins of an innocent animal. At that time, he evidently instructed Adam to bring an acceptable sacrifice, and later, when children would come along, Adam would teach them to do the same. This was because all of humanity would now inherit Adam's sin nature according to Romans chapter 5, verse 12 and Ephesians 2, 3. All would require the innocent substitutionary sacrifice. Even remote cultures around the world understand the ancient rite of sacrifice to appease the wrath of a god, even though it is not the god of the Bible they are sacrificing to. How did they learn this? If not from the very beginning and passed down from generation to generation as they spread out over the face of the earth. From then on, when God saw Adam and Eve clothed with animal skins, he saw the evidence that the price has been paid. It was a constant reminder to him forever. So from the beginning, mankind has known to approach God through the blood covenant, the spilling of blood of an innocent victim on behalf of the guilty. Of course, this does not mean that God accepts human sacrifices. Even in the case of Isaac, God stopped Abraham. The only human sacrifice that God would ever accept was that of his son, Jesus Christ, in a human body as the ultimate and final sacrifice. This is why works to earn God's favor never works. Deuteronomy 18 verse 9. When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casting of spells, or who is a medium or spiritist or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. As time passed, Adam and Eve became the proud parents of two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain was the oldest and took up farming as a livelihood. Abel was a shepherd. Now Adam had to learn things the hard way, about the spiritual facts of life. Wanting to spare his children the same heartache, he was obedient to teach them about the blood covenant. So in Genesis chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, we find the two boys bringing an offering to God. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. So Abel brought the best lambs from his flock. So God approved of Abel's offering because this was the way he established for sinful mankind to approach him. Therefore, Abel was acceptable to God, not by his own goodness, 
but based on the innocent blood sacrifice. It was the divinely ordained substitutionary sacrifice that made Abel acceptable to God. When God looked down at Abel's offering, he saw the blood of the innocent sacrifice. The blood was the evidence that the penalty for sin has been paid. God counted Abel as righteous, in right standing with him, because of his offering. Hebrews 11.4 By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man, when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. Now, contrary to his younger brother, Cain rejected God's way. He rejected the blood covenant. Instead of bringing an innocent sacrifice, he brought the fruit of his own labor. Cain probably brought his very best, but it represented his own good works. Unfortunately, even Cain's best goodness could not measure up to a perfect, absolute, holy God. You see, Cain was trying to approach God with his own self-righteousness, and humanity has been trying that ever since. But just as God rejected Adam and Eve's fig leaves, he also rejected Cain's offering of fruit. There was no evidence that the penalty of sin had been paid. There was no blood of an innocent substitute to cover Cain's sins. The fruit offering did not satisfy the wrath of God's violated justice, so the very best Cain had to offer of his own merit was not good enough. It was sinful man trying to approach a holy God on his own good works, rather than through the blood of an innocent substitutionary sacrifice. Sound familiar? Cain represents all the works-based religions of the world. Now God's rejection angered Cain, so he became outraged against God. However, instead of striking Cain dead, God gave him a chance to repent. God probably said something like, Cain, it's just like I told your parents. Our fellowship is restored by my grace and through your faith in accepting it my way. It is my gift, not your works. So instead of boasting about how good a farmer you are, just accept my provision for you, a blood sacrifice. If you don't, your own pride will ultimately destroy you. Let's read Genesis chapter 4 verse 5. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. As you can see in this verse that we just stated, Cain wouldn't repent because evil had filled his heart. He would not confess his need for God's provision. When his pride turned to hate, he killed his brother. In 1 John 3.12, God confirms this condition of Cain's heart. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. You see, God was left with no choice but to drive Cain from his presence in Genesis chapter 4, verse 8 through 16. Cain's descendants turned their back on the blood covenant and chose to follow their own evil ways according to Genesis chapter 4, verse 17 to 24. As a result, we see the makings of a population of rebellious God-haters that brings on Noah's flood. God gives a solemn reminder in Jude, verse 11 to 13, Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain, that those who go the way of Cain will come to their end in everlasting gloom and darkness, forever separated from God. God gave Adam and Eve another son to replace Abel. His name was Seth. Seth's descendants 
called upon the name of the Lord according to Genesis chapter 4 verse 26. They had accepted God's covenant through blood and offered an innocent substitutionary sacrifice to cover their sins. One of Seth's descendants was Noah, who walked with God and was the only righteous man in his generation. Genesis 6 verse 9. Therefore, when God destroyed the world because of its evil, he spared Noah and his family. What do you think Noah did as his very first act on dry land after the flood was over? He offered a sacrifice, and God took notice and was pleased. It moved God to declare that he would never again destroy every living creature, even though mankind's hearts are evil from childhood. Genesis 8 verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Earlier in this season on the Pentateuch, we saw that Abraham believed in the innocent blood sacrifice and was counted as righteous. Isaac and Jacob made sacrifices as well in Genesis 26 verse 24 and 25, chapter 31 verse 54, chapter 33 verse 20, chapter 35 verse 7, and chapter 46 verse 1. This is why God could introduce himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Exodus 3.15. Moses had asked Pharaoh for permission to sacrifice in the desert according to Exodus 3.18. During the Passover, every believing Hebrew family offered a sacrifice to God as protection against the destroyer who would take the life of the firstborn while the Hebrews were in Egypt. So we see that from the very beginning of man's history, God ordained the innocent substitutionary sacrifice as a basis of faith to come into right standing with God apart from human effort or religious works. It also afforded the means to teach and prepare humanity for God's ultimate plan that was consummated in Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God, slain from the foundations of the world. Phew! I hope you will appreciate the lengths at which the backdrop was painted concerning blood sacrifice, since our educational system in many churches do not teach these ancient biblical principles, it is imperative that we do so in order to truly appreciate and understand God's redemptive plan. The Sacrifice System Now God is going to make things even clearer by establishing an elaborate sacrificial system. The system would have five types of sacrifices. Each sacrifice would uniquely reveal something about the nature of the final sacrifice when God would give himself on behalf of humanity. Taken as a whole, they would form a complete picture of the perfect sacrifice. That way, everybody would recognize him when he came on the scene. Of course, that's Jesus. This system called for 1,273 public sacrifices a year, Numbers chapters 28 and 29. It included sacrifices each morning and evening, every Sabbath, the first day of each month, and during the special feast days of assembly and celebration. This amounts to almost 2 million public sacrifices and ceremonies from the time God established the system to the time he would come in the flesh as the perfect final sacrifice. Then when he offered himself, no more animal sacrifices will be needed from then on. Under the new covenant, we are called to offer ourselves now as living sacrifices unto God. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 and 2. 
In addition to the official public sacrifices, there were millions of individual sacrifices and offerings. Their number was staggering, so it was a continual bloodbath. God was making it clear that mankind can only approach him through an innocent blood sacrifice. With this background, let's now see how God maintained the blood covenant through the sacrifice system. The five types of offerings were a sin offering, trespass or guilt offering, the burnt offering, the meal and grain offering, the peace or fellowship offering. These offerings were to be the physical outward expression of the longings of the inward heart in seeking communion with God. The sin offering and trespass offering were mandatory offerings associated with the sins of the nation and the individual Hebrew. The burnt offering, meal offering, and peace offering were spontaneous voluntary offerings of praise and thanksgiving. They were not associated with the individual sin, but were part of his or her worship to God. Therefore, God was pleased with these voluntary offerings and considered them a sweet aroma. It's interesting that three out of the five or 60% of these offerings were associated with praise and worship rather than sin. I believe that this is what God expects to see today in the lives of individual Christians and in the worship services of the church. Hebrews 13.15 Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So let's look at a summary of these five different kinds of sacrificial offerings. First is the sin offering. A person would bring a bull, lamb, goat, or turtle dove, or pigeon. The offerer would lay their hands and kill the animal. The priest would sprinkle the blood on the altar. God's portion was most of the offering. The priest's portion was a portion not burned. The offerer received nothing. Then there's the trespass offering. The person would bring a ram lay their hands and kill the animal. The priest would sprinkle the blood on the altar. God's portion was the fat and inward parts. The priest would get the remainder. The offered would receive none. The burnt offering, which is the third offering, the offerer would bring a bull, a lamb, a goat, turtle dove, or pigeon. They would lay their hands and kill the animal. The priest would sprinkle the blood on the altar. God's portion was to burn all of it on the altar. The priest portion was just the skin, and the offerer received nothing. Then we come to the fourth one, the meal or grain offering. The offerer would bring fine flour, oil, salt, and no leaven and honey. The offerer would bring it to the priest. The priest would offer a handful. God's portion was that handful, and the priest would receive the remainder. The offerer received nothing. And then the last one is the peace or fellowship offering. The offerer would bring a bull or lamb and a goat. They would lay their hands and kill the animal. The priest would sprinkle the blood on the altar. God's portion was the fat of the inward parts, and the priest's portion was the breast and the shoulder. The offerer would receive the remainder. However, all these sacrifices are mere symbolisms. They are not the real thing. The Old Covenant sacrificial system was meant to point us to the real thing, which is Jesus Christ. The old system required that you keep on bringing the sacrifices again and again and again. Isaiah chapter 1. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. It only covered them. Colossians 2 verse 16. Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. 
Hebrews 7.27 Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Hebrews 10 verse 1 The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why, when the old covenant saints died, they did not go directly to heaven. They were escorted by the angels of God to a compartment next to Hades in the center of the earth called Abraham's bosom. You can read more about that in Luke chapter 16 verse 19 to 31. The blood of bulls and goats cannot make you righteous. It is not the true meat and the true drink that satisfies the longing of your heart to have a personal union and communion with God. It is not the promised seed or the singular seed, the person of Abraham, who would be a blessing to the whole world, that is Jesus Christ. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born as a Jew, Galatians 4.4. All the fullness of God dwelled in him. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19 God had come to earth as the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for sin on our behalf. He came to purchase our salvation with his own blood. There is no other way. Acts 4.12 Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Colossians chapter 1.15 Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Jesus Christ is the one for whom Adam and Eve were waiting. The skins of the innocent animal covering their body was a constant reminder that he would come. Jesus Christ is that more acceptable sacrifice in whom Abel put his trust. Jesus Christ is the substitute offering that renewed the covenant with Seth and his descendants. Jesus Christ is Noah's sacrifice that moved God to put a rainbow in the sky. Jesus Christ is the one Abraham believed in and was counted as righteous. Jesus Christ is the reason God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus Christ is Moses' sacrifice before Pharaoh. Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb that delivered the Hebrews from Egypt. Jesus Christ is the new covenant sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. He is the one the old covenant sacrifices pointed to so that everyone would recognize him when he arrived on the scene. This is how Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, could quote passage after passage beginning with the books of Genesis 
and going right through the scriptures, explaining what the passages meant and what they said concerning himself. Luke 24.25 Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things, and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Acts 3.24 Indeed all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. You see, God knew exactly what he was doing when he would come to offer himself. This is why he gave such specific details on how to offer each sacrifice. He would perfectly fulfill them in Jesus Christ. If you wanted someone to recognize you, you would tell them everything about yourself in advance. Then when you arrived on the scene, they would know who you are. This is how the entire Old Covenant points to Jesus. This is how Jesus could say that everything written in the Law of Moses, in the Prophets, and in the Psalms were about him. Luke 24 verse 44 Jesus said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Let's now look at the New Covenant sacrifice in light of the Old Testament sacrifices and how they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ and how it refers to us today. First is the sin offering. Jesus Christ became the forgiveness for the sinner by becoming sin for us. And for us as Christians, our response is to be crucified with Christ. The trespass or guilt offering, Jesus provides the forgiveness for our sins that we commit by taking sins on himself. For the Christian, we confess our sins unto God according to 1 John 1, nine. Then there's the burnt offering. Jesus completely gave himself to the Father. And for us, our response is to present ourselves by yielding to his lordship. The meal or grain offering, Jesus walked in obedience to the Father. And for us, we walk in the Holy Spirit. And finally, the peace or fellowship offering, Jesus had perfect fellowship with the Father. And for us, communion and fellowship with God. The sin offering. Let's begin with the sin offering in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 1 through 5, chapter 13, and chapter 6, verse 24 to 30. You present the sin offering to God because you are a sinner. The Ten Commandments made that very clear. Oh, you tried hard enough to keep them, but you just couldn't. There is something within you that caused you to fall short of their demands. Maybe you never killed anybody, but you wanted to on occasion. That's what the commandments were all about. They were concerned with what you wanted to do and not so much with what you actually did. You see, before knowing Jesus, you were not a sinner because you had sinned, but you sinned because you were a sinner by nature. That's who you were. It was your nature to sin. You inherited it from Adam. So as an Old Covenant Hebrew, in order to approach a holy God, you must have a sin offering. Leviticus 4.13 If the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally, and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though the community is unaware of the matter, they are guilty. When they become aware of the sin they committed, the assembly must bring a young bull as a sin offering and present it before the tent of meeting. The offering you bring must be spotless, with no defects or blemishes. You see, the animal foreshadows the perfect sacrifice that will come later, so it cannot be contaminated. As you bring your offering to the altar, the priest is waiting to meet you. 
Next, you place the offering on the altar and lay or heavily lean your hands on the head of the animal and kill it. In this way, you personally identify with the animal. This is not just a meaningless ritual. You know that your sins are symbolically being transmitted to this animal that is dying in your place. You feel him dying on your behalf, and you are grateful for the innocent substitutionary sacrifice. Except for the grace of God, you would be on that altar paying the price for your own sins. As you kill the animal, the priest is standing there with you in order to catch the blood. He sprinkles some of it on the horns of the altar and pours out the rest at the base of the altar. Then the priest takes the fat of the inward parts of your sacrifice and burns it on the altar. The Middle Eastern Hebrew considered the fat as the choicest part of the animal. It protected the vital life-giving organs, and on the inward parts represented the heart of the animal. So symbolically, you are giving your heart to God. Your heart is your sin nature that is now being offered to God on the altar. Because this is a sin offering, the sacrifice has to be taken outside the camp, away from the presence of God. So the priest takes the carcass of the animal beyond the gate in the camp to a place where ashes are brought from the altar. God has declared this place to be ceremonially clean because of the ashes. The ashes indicate that an offering has been made and sin has been dealt with. Now the priest was always rewarded for the service he performed. Except for his portion, the entire animal was burned outside the camp at the place of the ashes. All of the animal had to be burned because it represented sin. God consumed the whole sacrifice. You, on the other hand, get none of the offering yourself because that would indicate communion with God, and God cannot commune where there is sin. According to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Old and the New Covenants confirm that we need a sin offering to reconcile us to God. Jesus Christ is our sin offering. Since he had never sinned, he was a perfect sacrifice without spot or blemish. 1 Peter 1.18 For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. In the sin offering, the blood on the horns of the altar looked ahead to the blood of Jesus on the cross. As the blood is poured out at the foot of the altar, all his blood was poured out at the foot of the cross. To fulfill the sin offering, Jesus went beyond the gate of the temple, outside the camp, at which was the city of Jerusalem. There, High upon a hill called Calvary, God placed the sin of the world upon Jesus, past, present, and future, and he endured the wrath of God Almighty. Hebrews 13.11 The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. John one twenty nine. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Romans 8 verse 3. 
For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son, in the likeness of sinful man, to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah chapter 53 is an incredible prophetic passage concerning the redemptive work of Jesus that came to pass 2,000 years ago. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 4 through 6 and verse 10 through 11. Surely he took up our infirmities and our sicknesses and carried our sorrows and pains. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we were healed. We, all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Jesus, as our total sacrifice, was consumed as he became sin with our sin that was placed upon him. Just as the priest placed his hands on the sacrifice, confessing the sins of the people before it was slain, so the Father God placed all the sin of the world upon Jesus and sacrificed him on our behalf on the cross. The innocent died on behalf of the guilty. That is love. Second Corinthians 5.21 God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Leviticus 16.21 He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. God the Father could not look upon Jesus as our sin offering. Jesus as our sin offering cried out from the cross in Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sapakathani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in all eternity, up to that moment, the second person of the Godhead was separated from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit because of our sin. The torment of the cross was nothing compared to the unimaginable anguish of this separation. Jesus took on our sin nature when he became sin for us. He became who we were. In terms of the blood covenant, we exchanged spiritual natures at the cross. Remember when discussing blood covenant, the first thing I do is take off my coat or robe and give it to you. Now to the Hebrew, a person's robe represents the person. That is why Joseph's coat of many colors was so important. By taking off my robe and giving it to you, I'm symbolically saying, I'm giving you all myself. My total being in my life, I pledge to you. And then you would do the same to me. When Jesus was crucified, he took our robe of sin, our sin nature, and our self-righteousness, 
which is as filthy rags according to Isaiah 64.6. In exchange, we received his perfect robe of righteousness. God now sees us as he sees Jesus, with a perfect, born-again, spiritual nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God considers us, who claim Jesus' death on our behalf, as being crucified with him. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Our sins are no longer put to our account. They were put to his account on the cross. Therefore God does not see us as sinners anymore. He sees us as clean, holy, and righteous. It has been imputed unto us by grace through faith. We can never in all eternity improve upon what God has already done in our recreated spirit natures. Entrance into heaven requires absolute perfection. We are not sinners saved by grace. Rather, we were sinners, but now, by God's grace, we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 10.10 And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Without being clothed with the righteousness of Christ, we have no right to be in heaven or enjoy reconciliation with God. Matthew 22, verse 11. But when the king comes in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are invited, but few are chosen. Now this is really important for us to understand. It does not mean that we are fully mature believers when we first receive God's free gift of salvation, free to us, but cost God an unimaginable price. We still have to grow in the knowledge of God and learn to walk as Jesus did. 1 John 2.6 Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Ephesians 4.13 Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The greatest horror story in the history of the world is when a person chooses to pay for their own sins by rejecting Jesus as their personal sacrifice. 
We approach God through faith in the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from our sins, not by trying to keep the Ten Commandments or any other religious set of do's and don'ts. See Galatians chapter 2 verse 16 to 21 and chapter 3 verse 15 to 25. When we accept Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, we give him our heart, not mental credence or mental assent to him as a historical figure, which represents our inwardmost parts. Through childlike faith, we offer absolute surrender, desperate abandonment, clinging to Jesus Christ as our one and only Savior, rescuer, and hero of our souls. This kind of dependence, giving oneself over to the mercy of God, is what God requires. There is no earning, deserving, or meriting God's salvation. In exchange, He gives us His nature, which is without spot or blemish. It is pure and holy, therefore acceptable to God. Christ's imputed or credited righteousness unto us apart from works, the blessed promise, Please read Romans chapter 4 for more. Therefore, there is now no more guilt, shame, or condemning sentence, according to Romans chapter 8 verse 1 and John 5.24. Looking ahead to this point in time, the prophet Isaiah wrote, I delight greatly in the Lord, my soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. That's Isaiah 61 verse 10. This is what no animal could do, but only symbolically representing us. Only Jesus was our real representative. Please also read Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 through 20 for even more details. For an old covenant teaching of a sacrifice being offered and coming back to life, see the story of the two birds in Leviticus chapter 14. This points to the Messiah coming from heaven, being crucified and resurrected and returning to heaven bearing his own blood as the final sin offering. Now we have been crucified with Christ. We no longer have to serve sin anymore. It no longer has dominion over us unless we allow it to by our own free will. We have been set free by the blood of Jesus. Romans chapter 6 is good reading on this. Jesus as our sin offering, you can also read in Galatians chapter 1 verse 4, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21, Hebrews chapters 9 and 10, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8 to 15, 1 Peter 2:24 and Isaiah chapter 53. The trespass offering. Whereas the sin offering deals with your position before God, the trespass offering addresses your walk with God. Leviticus 5:14 to verse 19 and chapter 7 verse 1 through 10. You offer it for the sins you have committed, rather than for sin itself. Old Covenant saints were not born again, as we are in the New Covenant. Indeed, they had a covenant with God as Abraham's descendants, but they were still sinners by spiritual nature. When they sinned, they needed to bring a trespass offering. As you lay your hands on the offering, identifying yourself with it, you confess your particular sins. Your statement of confession offered to God is, O Jehovah, I have sinned, I have done perversely, I have rebelled and have committed, naming the sins, but I return in repentance and let this be for my atonement. So confessing your sins removes the burden of guilt and it brings continuous forgiveness so you can approach God with a clear conscience. The priest offers the fat of the inward parts to God upon the altar. 
He then sprinkles blood back and forth on the altar and pours out the remainder at the base of the altar. The priest eats the remainder of the offering, but you do not share in the offering because it is for your sins you have committed. Along with the offering, you must make restitution for any harm you have done to a fellow Hebrew. This includes reimbursing him in full and adding 20% to the value of his loss. This brings about a reconciliation between you and the one you have harmed. Leviticus chapter 6 verse 1 through 7. The Ten Commandments have helped you realize you are separated from God by your sins. This drives you to approach Him through the blood covenant. Through the sin offering and trespass offering, you express your desire for communion with God. You know that the blood of animals is only a temporary provision to cover your sins, but you are looking forward to the time when the perfect sacrifice will come to take them away. Jesus not only took on our sin nature, but he also took all the sins that we have or will ever commit. He died not for who we are, but also for what we do. In the sin offering, Jesus Christ destroyed the power of sin over us, which is what the Bible refers to as iniquity, or the sin nature, which in the Hebrew language means the crooked, perverse, and twisted nature, our propensity to sin by nature. Isaiah 53, 6, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. We need no longer to serve our old nature, because it was crucified with Christ, according to Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Yet we still sin as Christians. When we do, we need a trespass offering. Jesus Christ is our trespass offering. 2 Corinthians 5.19 For God was in Christ restoring or reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, but blotting them out. This is the wonderful message he has given to us to tell others. Colossians 1.14, in whom we have redemption, the remission of sins. His perfect sacrifice included forgiveness for every sin that you or I have ever committed in the past, present, or future. Every sin that we may be committing today, and every sin that we will ever commit in the future. To help us realize this extent of God's forgiveness, Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, When you were dead in your transgressions, and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Psalms 103.12 As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah 43.25 I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and remembers your sins no more. There is a powerful biblical truth concerning the word remittance, which is an accounting term that means to blot out or erase like it was never there. By God's amazing grace, this is what he has done with our sins. Through the precious blood of Jesus, he blots them out into oblivion. God has forgiven us for all our sins because all of them, past, present, and future, were nailed to the cross of Jesus. Not only has God forgiven us all of our sins, but he doesn't even remember them. He blotted them from his very memory. 
This is what the blood of bulls and goats could not do. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 to 14, and verse 17 to 18. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. When we sin, the scriptures tell us that our own heart, our spirit, will condemn us and reveal our sin to us. It's not the Holy Spirit, as you might think. Let's read 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth, and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence, whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask, because we obey His commands and do what pleases Him. Jesus stated that the Holy Spirit would convict the world of one sin only, in John 16 verse 8, that is left for unbelievers to commit, the one sin that sends them to hell, the sin of rejecting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Jesus has already bore all the sins of the world. All that is left for mankind to do now is to confess Jesus as their Lord. Righteousness, reconciliation, justification, sanctification, and everything else that is included in salvation is accredited to them by grace through faith. Ephesians 2.8 For salvation, according to Romans 10.9, does not instruct the unbeliever to confess all their sins to God, and you cannot remember them all anyway, but rather to confess Jesus as Lord. Nowhere in the New Covenant will you find a scripture that states that the Holy Spirit convicts the saints of sin. John 16, verse 8. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because people do not believe in me. In regards to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. In regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Thank God, when we do sin, we have a promise in 1 John 1 9 for the believer to confess their sins to God. Watch out for false condemnation, Satan trying to take advantage of Christians. When we confess our sins to God, our fellowship that was broken by sin is now restored. We continue to be a child of God, so our relationship is intact even when we sin. Remember, sin opens the door to Satan to come in and to kill, steal, and destroy. So be quick to forgive and quick to repent. Ephesians 4.27 and John 10.10. 10. 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 through 10 and chapter 2 verse 1 through 2. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us all our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We stay free from condemnation and a guilty conscience by confessing our sins to God and claiming the forgiveness that is already ours through the blood of Jesus. Just like the Old Covenant believer, we say, Heavenly Father, I have sinned, I have done perversely, and I have rebelled. I have committed, and you name the sins, but I have returned in repentance and claim my forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. He is my atonement. So along with our confession to our Heavenly Father, we must also confess our sins and make restitution to anyone we may have harmed by our sins. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Ephesians 4.26 In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. You see, when we get angry at someone and don't confess it, we begin to harbor that anger, that resentment, that envy or jealousy, and it hardens our heart, according to Hebrews 3.13. When this happens, the root of bitterness begins to take hold. That's just the foothold Satan needs to destroy us and create strife and enmity between us and another person. As a result, our faith won't work. Galatians 5.6 says that faith works by love. That reality can get us into big trouble since our prayers would be hindered. 1 Peter 3.7 Hebrews 12.15 See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Well, God has a better life for us than that. So he says in Ephesians 4.31, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. You see, for spiritual as well as physical healing, James wrote in James 5.16, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So many people have expressed a desire to commune with God by accepting Jesus Christ as their sin offering and trespass offering. They realize that they could not save themselves, and so they turn to Jesus Christ as their Savior. Yet sadly, they are not experiencing the abundant Christian life the Bible promises. They are not enjoying the spiritual blessings God has for them. Their position with God is secure but the grace and glory of God is not manifested in their life. This happens to a Christian because they have not appropriated Jesus Christ as their burnt offering, their meal offering and peace offering. Oftentimes, when this is brought to a Christian's attention, they will say, well, I'm not ready to make that full commitment. What they really are saying is, I've expressed a desire for communion with God, but I'm not yet ready to enter into it. Remember that these are the voluntary offerings of praise and thanksgiving. They are not associated with our sin, but with our worship to God. God won't force us to worship Him. We must choose to do so of our own free will. Yet the only way to experience the abundant Christian life is by expressing our readiness to have it through these offerings. The Burnt Offering Now that you have expressed a desire for communion with God, 
you want to offer yourself to him. You indicate this through the burnt offering. The burnt offering expresses your readiness for communion with God. It is a voluntary offering of yourself. God doesn't force you to make this offering. You present yourself of your own free will. Yet, if you aren't willing to present yourself, it shows you aren't ready to have communion with God. Leviticus chapter 1 verse 3 through 17 and chapter 6 verse 8 through 13. The offering you bring is a bull, lamb, or goat. If you are poor, you may bring a turtle dove or pigeon. These are not wild animals, but domesticated pets you have personally raised. As with all the offerings, they must be spotless, without defects or blemishes. As you bring the animal you have raised from its youth to the altar, you lay your hands on its head to identify with it. If the offering is a lamb, you kill it on the north side of the altar. The priest catches the blood and sprinkles it around about and upon the altar. Then the priest skins the animal to expose all the inward parts. He then carefully dissects the animal checking each part to make sure it is free from all defects. After the priest is satisfied with his examination, he burns the entire animal on the altar, except for the skin. So also Jesus was carefully examined by the religious leaders to look for a flaw, a crack, or any tiny little issue that would disqualify him from being their Messiah. They were relentless, yet Jesus perfectly met all the requirements. Luke 11.53 When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Luke 20 verse 39 Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. 1 Peter 1.19 But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So the entire animal is offered as an expression of your readiness to present your entire being to God. It is a complete consecration of giving of yourself to God. Nothing can be held in reserve if you want to commune with Him. The smoke from the burnt offering ascends as a sweet aroma to God. Leviticus 1.9 It is a burnt offering and an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. For His service, the priest receives the skin of the offering. The skin is the evidence that a sacrifice has been made. Since an entire sacrifice is offered to God, there is no portion left for you. Jesus Christ voluntarily left his home in glory to become our burnt offering. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 through 8. As the animal was killed on the north side of the altar, Jesus too was crucified on the north side of Jerusalem. He perfectly fulfills every detail of the old covenant. In the burnt offering, the entire animal was offered to God. Likewise, Jesus said in John chapter 6 verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but do the will of him who sent me. On another occasion in John 4.34, My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Paul also recognized Jesus as our burnt offering when he spoke in Ephesians 5.2, Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As Jesus offered himself to God with no reservations, so we, too, must do the same concerning our own lives. Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. We present ourselves as a living sacrifice by yielding to the Lordship of Jesus over our lives. It takes many Christians a lifetime, and some never realize that Jesus is not just our Savior who came to help us when we are in trouble. Jesus came to take over our lives as Lord as well. As our Lord, He is the Master, Ruler, and Controller of our life. We are His purchased possession. He bought and paid for us with His own blood, Ephesians 1.14. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own, you are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. As a burnt offering, we lay ourselves open for God to inspect us. Our prayer must be like in Psalms 139.23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Jesus as our burnt offering can also be read in Psalms 40 verse 6 through 8, John 4.34, Ephesians 5.2, and Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. The Meal Offering At this point, You've expressed a desire for communion with God through the sin offering and the trespass offering. You now then expressed a readiness for communion with God through the burnt offering. You now come to the meal or the grain offering. Now that you have expressed a desire for readiness to commune with God, you want to walk with Him and serve Him. The meal offering symbolizes your walk in communion with God. Leviticus chapters 2 and chapter 6 verse 14 to 23. The meal offering was the only offering without blood. However, it was only offered along with the burnt offering. The offering consisted of fine flour mingled with oil. Salt was added for seasoning and frankincense for spice. You offer it as raw flour or as unleavened cakes and wafers that have been baked, fried, or roasted. No leaven or honey could be used in the flour. Having properly prepared the offering, you present it to the priest. The priest offers a handful to God and eats the remainder. The handful represents the whole of the offering, accepting the representative handful. God accepts the whole. Since the meal offering represents your walk with God by His might and power, and for His glory alone, you do not share in the meal. On one occasion, Jesus said in John 12:24, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus was speaking of his death and resurrection. Through it, he perfectly fulfilled the meal offering by becoming the bread of life for us to feed on. The meal offering symbolizes our walk in communion with God. Speaking of his walk with the Father, Jesus said in John 8.29, I always do those things that please him. In the Bible, leaven or yeast represents sin. Honey with leaven represents the pleasures of sin. See Matthew 16 verse 6, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6 through 8, Revelation chapter 10 verse 9 through 10. As the perfect meal offering, Jesus knew no sin, according to 2 Corinthians 5:21. There was no leaven or honey in his life. It was as the sweet fragrance of incense to the heavenly Father. The Bible uses oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. In place of leaven and honey, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. 
As oil was poured on the flour of the meal offering, it was also poured upon Jesus. When he was water baptized, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lightning upon him. God then spoke and said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Matthew 3.17 In Luke chapter 4 verse 18 it states, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Acts 10.38 How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. Now salt preserves and purifies from corruption. Jesus is our salt. In that, he is able to keep us from falling. Jude 24 To him who is able to keep you from falling, and to present you before his glorious presence, without fault and with great joy. This is the sealing with the Holy Spirit, when we confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts that God had raised him from the dead. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, chapter 4 verse 30, 2 Corinthians 1 22, 1 Peter 1 verse 5. In this regard, salt relates to our position with God. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are called the salt of the earth by Jesus himself in Matthew 5 13, which relates to our walk with God. Christians function as the salt of the earth when we appropriate Jesus as our meal offering, and there is no leaven or honey found in him, neither should there be any found in us. This means to walk with God in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, God through the Holy Spirit will not lead us into temptation, James 1.13. Therefore, when we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh or our physical body. Since we live in the Spirit, we should always walk in the Spirit according to Galatians 5.16-25. To make the meal offering a reality in our life, Paul writes for all Christians to be filled with the Spirit according to Ephesians 5.18. The Holy Spirit is God living in us. Only when we allow Him to control our life can we experience fellowship with God. When we experience fellowship with God, we find it so much better than any honey the world can ever offer. It creates a desire within us to set our affections on things that are above rather than on earthly gains and earthly things. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 through 3. As the song goes, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Psalm 1611. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Psalm 63.3. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Psalms 84.10. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. It becomes our motivation to want to come out from the world and be separate. 2 Corinthians 6.17 It moves us to be holy as he is holy. 1 Peter 1.16 That we may glorify and bring honor to him who has brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9 Like frankincense, our lives will be a sweet fragrance to our Heavenly Father. 2 Corinthians 2.14 But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere, 
the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Jesus as our meal offering can also be seen in John chapter 4 verse 34, chapter 8 verse 29, chapter 12 verse 23 to 24, Luke chapter 4:18, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2, and 1 Peter 2:22. The peace offering. By the time you come to the peace offering, you've expressed a desire for communion with God through the sin offering and trespass offering. You've expressed a readiness for communion through the burnt offering and meal offering. You are now ready and going to celebrate that communion through the peace offering. Leviticus chapter 3 and chapter 7 verse 11 to 36. All the other offerings have been leading to the peace offering. This is the one you've been looking forward to presenting because you're going to get a portion of this offering. It symbolizes the completion of your union. But first, you had to be cleansed of your sins and offer your total being to God. Now that you have made that commitment, you're going to celebrate your union with God by sharing in the peace offering. This is what you've always wanted. This is why you have made the other offerings. Through the peace offering, the cry and yearning of your heart is met as you enter into communion with God by sharing in this offering. With a noticeable anticipation, you hurriedly lay your hands on the head of the animal and kill it. The priest catches the blood and sprinkles it all around and upon the altar. He then takes the fat, places it upon the altar, and offers it to God. With the help of the priest, you now offer to God the breast and the right shoulder of your sacrifice. The breast represents your heart, the right shoulder your strength. The priest places his hands under yours, and together you move the sacrifice up and down, right and left, in a waving motion resembling a T. God then gives back this portion. The high priest receives the breast, and the right shoulder goes to the priest, who is helping you make the offering. Along with the animal sacrifice, you also bring unleavened cakes and wafers mixed with oil, plus loaves of leavened bread. There, in the courtyard of the tabernacle, you eat the remainder of the sacrifice along with the loaves with your family and friends. It is a time of great joy as together you celebrate communion with God. Since God has returned part of the offering to you, you are now symbolically feeding on His divine nature. He is coming into you and you into Him. You are becoming one with God. That's just what you have always wanted. To know God and share in His very own divine nature. To become one with Him. And now it's happening in the peace offering. It's the ultimate symbolism of your union with God. When Jesus was born, all of heaven gave praise to God, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to mankind on whom his favor rests. In Luke chapter 2 verse 14, God's favor rests on all who have accepted Jesus as their peace offering. He is the true meat and true drink that satisfies the cries and longings of the human heart. You can see this in John chapter 6, verse 53 to 63. This is the offering we have been looking forward to. All the other offerings were leading up to this one. We get a portion of this offering. The portion we get is God's very own divine nature coming into us by the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness 
through our knowledge of Him, who has called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. In the peace offering, the breast and right shoulder that were waved before God in a T-motion looked ahead to the cross of Jesus, where he suffered as our sin sacrifice. Psalms chapter 22 provides some details and prophetic insight into what Jesus suffered for us. Let's read some of that in Psalms chapter 22 verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Just as the breast and shoulder were given back to the priest, so also were they given back to Jesus. Now he ministers in the heavenly holy of holies as our great high priest. There before a heavenly father, Jesus bears our name over his heart and on his shoulder. Through his intercession on our behalf, we can cast all our cares upon him, for he cares for us. 1 Peter 5, 7 Now, because we're in Christ, we can do all things through him who gives us strength. Philippians 4.13 Hebrews 7.25 Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Romans 8.34 Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all humanity. As the peace offering was eaten with leavened bread and unleavened bread mixed with oil, so we, who know sin, have received within us Jesus who did not know sin. The Holy Spirit is the heavenly oil of joy and gladness who has come to live in our hearts. At one time, we were separated from God by our sins. Being apart from God, we were restless with no peace in our hearts. But now, through the blood of Jesus, we may draw near to God. We may walk in communion and fellowship with Him. We may walk in peace with Him and with each other. John 14, 27. John 16, verse 33. Jesus as our peace offering is also mentioned in Luke 2, 14, Colossians 1, verse 16 to 23, and chapter 3, verse 15, Ephesians 2.14, Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two, Jew and Gentile, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. When Jesus gave himself as the perfect sacrifice, he fulfilled the old covenant. We no longer worship a system, but a person. Jesus, he is that person. He is the sacrifice needed for cleansing. Speaking of himself through King David, God said in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 5, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here am I. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Both Jew and Gentile can now enter into a new covenant as a new creation 
as one new person through the blood of Jesus, the once and for all perfect sacrifice. I highly encourage you to continue listening to the Word of Life study series podcast and encourage your friends to tune in as well. The scriptures encourage us in Acts chapter 17 verse 11 to receive the message with great eagerness and to examine the scriptures every day in order to confirm the truth that you're hearing. God's word is our final authority for all matters that pertain to life and godliness. I'd like to close this episode by praying over you according to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And in chapter 2, verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Be blessed and see you soon.